0: blog talk radio happy new year everybody out there in radio land this is your moderator justin russell moderator of backroom politics the greatest political talk show you've never heard of well it's the end of the year and we thought it'd be a good idea to rebroadcast our end of the year show that originally broadcast on december 17th about two weeks ago just a reminder we will be back live with the rest of the crew next tuesday live from shelley's backroom 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And it'll be the start of a great new year. A lot of big things happening for backroom politics in 2014. You'll be the first to know since you listen to us. But we want to thank the somewhat of 150,000 listeners that listened to our show last year. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your support. So on behalf of Congressman Al, Bob Hines, uh, Alan Moore, Denise Krepp, and Carl Tubin. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. The entire team at Backroom Politics wants to wish you and your family a happy new year, a prosperous 2014, and here's to political civility. So work again. Enjoy this best of. We'll see you next week live from Shelley's. Happy New Year.
1: Lock, talk radio.
0: Today on Backroom Politics, the budget deal that goes forward. The NSA gets told to don't listen to my phone calls, and it's our last show of the year, which means it's our year in review for 2013. All the great stories, all the great leads. That and maybe we'll get to tell you a story. This is Backroom Politics.
2: Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 662 3713 And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell.
0: And good afternoon out there in radio land. It's time for the best radio show that you've never heard of, Talking Politics here in D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello,
2: Justin, how are you? I'm doing
0: fantastic. And to my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He's the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob.
3: Hi, Justin. How you doing?
0: Doing fantastic. And at my 12 o'clock, she is the former House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson. She's the former Obama appointee as General Counsel uh, to the Maritime Administration, she is the Honorable Denise Crap. Hello, Denise.
4: Hello, Justin.
0: And to my one o'clock, he is longtime Senate staffer, former Undersecretary of Commerce, who served at last count under four presidents. He is a longtime Washington insider, the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan.
5: Justin, good
0: morning. And good to my right, ironically, tonight. <clears throat> tonight, whatever. And to my right, he is the former Executive Director of the, of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland, longtime Washington insider, Carl Tuvin. Hello, Carl.
6: Hello, Justin and everybody.
0: <clears throat> well, it's, it's lots of stuff to get to today, but we should note that today is our last show of 2013. Uh, we've celebrated our three years on the air. We have celebrated our 150th show. A uh, lot of milestones this year, but a lot of political stuff. So in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to kind of do our political year in review like we do every year. And uh, But first, we've got to get to just absolutely breaking stories as they go forward. First story that we're going to talk about in this segment is the budget deal. Uh, in case you haven't heard, as we were reporting last Tuesday, the uh the budget, the budget conference got together uh, Senator Patty Murray of the great state of Washington, Senator, uh, Congressman Paul Ryan of the great state of uh, Wisconsin, got together as the leads for their respective bodies and came up with a budget deal. The budget deal is being spun in Washington as a bipartisan deal that will fund government through the, year for the, through the fiscal year 2015. However, as soon as the budget deal was put out, Republicans and Democrats started lining up en masse, starting with Senator Marco Rubio, Republican out of Florida, saying that this deal is, and I'm going to paraphrase, crap. So, that being the deal, uh, I'm going to start off Alan Moore when you when you when we were sitting here waiting for the budget deal to come out we kind of had some ideas there were some some sparks going around of what could be and might not be in the deal were you surprised by the deal that was announced by Senator Murray and uh, and uh, congressman ryan
5: I was not surprised I was mostly saddened for a strikingly small deal having what? said that having said that at least it's a deal it 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 worked in ways that that both parties could find something in it that would allow them to vote for it although not much in either case the good thing about it is it was a deal and it's going to allow government to continue at least from a budgetary standpoint um Uh, We've we've got outlines for the next year and nine months. On the negative side, it did virtually nothing, almost nothing on the really big stuff that is so threatening to the future of our economy.
0: Well, but Bob Hines, conservatives are coming out just in droves against this deal, uh, leading some to believe that they're might be a little bit of, if not voicing of concerns, a little bit of a rabble-rouse going on when the Senate takes up the vote last we heard tomorrow. Uh, they are saying that this is not a conservative deal, that the Republicans in the House and the Senate have basically given way to the continuing liberalism coming out of the White House and the U.S. Senate. Would you agree with that?
3: Uh, no, not really. Uh, the Tea Party, obviously the Tea Party people are unhappy
0: because it's a, it's a
3: compromise. And they don't believe in compromise. They believe in shooting, shooting themselves in the foot. The fact of the matter is, I think as Alan says, it's probably the best thing that could
0: have happened right now. But even though, according to most estimates, it increases spending limits by $63 billion, uh, over the next two years, that wasn't what or at least from what I see here in D.C., that wasn't very, quote-unquote, conservative. Well,
3: no, it wasn't. But the fact of the matter is the number in the House budget and the number in the Senate budget was about uh, $110 billion difference between them. The division is about 63. You're right, so it's about halfway through. the the, the House budget the House number went up, the Senate number went down, they came in more or less in the middle. That's not a bad place to be. It's the first time the two parties have been able to do something like that in a number of years. And it's nice to have that kind of problem behind us. As Alan said it is a very small package. And when we get in in about uh, six weeks from now we are going to begin to start worrying about the deficit again, because it's going, we had a very short term extension,
1: and we're going to be
3: back, and I suspect that both parties will be, at that point, will be back in their traditional positions, the Democrats wanting to do not touch any of the entitlements in any way, shape, or form, and the Republicans saying, we will not raise any taxes unless you do something, and neither party will want to move, and we'll be right back in the puddle again.
0: Congressman now
2: I completely agree with his projection of the future. <clears throat> but as regards this uh, uh, agreement, <clears throat> the Republicans are making it sound like the liberals just overwhelmed them and got everything they wanted. I know Patty Murray. I know her well. This is not the, the piece of legislation Patty Murray by herself would draft, not close to it. Uh, and so you're hearing some grumbling from the Democrats, but the Democratic Party seems to be going through one of its occasional periods of sanity uh, and is not seems to understand what a compromise is and that they, they, they're not going to get everything they want. The Republicans seem to understand that less well. well
1: the Republicans
3: in the House did understand it. Yes, but let me jump back in on that
2: Senate
0: though.
3: Particularly
2: after Boehner uh, unloaded on the the, the crazies, uh, how how did that message not get across? Well,
0: but there, there were several capital. no, but there there were several Bob Republicans that I mean, even though it was you know overwhelmingly passed in the House, which surprised a lot in D.C., you're still talking about over 90 members of the House that voted against the budget deal, for whatever reason, several of them prominent Republicans who didn't agree with the deal. There's obviously some resemblance of a Tea Party faction in the House that's going to fight this regardless. Of
3: course there is. The Tea Party is not going to go away uh, yet, but at least they have learned enough to know that they have to do something.
2: But 90 votes in opposition in the House is nothing. No. Not, out of, no, not out no, out I of would agree with that. No, I absolutely
0: agree with that. You're talking a 336
2: 330, yeah.
0: 336 to 94 vote. That's very, a very substantial strong, win. Very strong vote. Very strong vote. But Denise, you know, one of the thing one of the criticisms that Republicans are coming out with are saying, well, look, they're breaking the promise. For example, you there's an article in yesterday at our friends from Politico, Tim Phillips, the head of Americans for Prosperity wrote an op-ed that basically says the Democrats and the Senate are breaking their 2011 promise by not cutting the deficit by trillions over the next ten years. They're saying this is another deal that they pulled the carpet out from conservatives. Denise, you're looking at me kind of strangely.
4: Well, I disagree with what Congressman Al just said. This is called a mutual agreement by both sides. I can't say that we've gone against something that we agreed to in 2011 or 2013, we were in dire straits. We needed a budget. So what we may have said, or what somebody may have said, 2011, doesn't matter. We needed a budget. You cannot go into January with people having bills to pay and not knowing whether or not they're going to have their salaries. That's just not going to work. But what I would like to do is put a plug in real fast. Regardless of whatever happened, I can tell you who is going to lose, and that's the maritime community. Because the maritime administration's budget has just been cut by about $100 million has been cut because people have made the decision that we don't want to sell maritime policy in the United States. Without a sell maritime policy, maritime folks who are owing on our ships are about to lose their jobs.
6: But, Carl Tubin, go ahead. Well, one of the things that they left out of this deal was the unemployment insurance, and there are about 1.4 million people in this country, if not more, who are going to lose benefits after the 28th of December. And uh, some of those folks we're not going to be able to pay their car insurance. We're not going to be able to pay bills. We're not going to be able to pay mortgages, and that that is that's a a, a bad thing. Uh, <clears throat> I think I think what I like about this whole thing is is Ryan and Senator Murray got together and worked something out, and their and their groups, their their budget committees, and worked something out. <clears throat> hopefully, hopefully, this is a sign that maybe. Other committees can work together and do the same thing, and we have a little bit more collegiality. I'm not going to the bank on this, but a little more collegiality in the second session of this Congress.
5: Alan Moore, first. Yeah, let me let me describe a metaphor that that it, that I worry about that, that may be going on here. We're on the Titanic. We're in the high seas, and we just Get a little something and we're not sure what it is meanwhile up above there's an argument going on about whether the deck chairs should be over on the right side of the boat or should be on the left side of the boat and there's two different sides. No, we got to keep over here on the sunny side. No, we need to keep over here on the shady side. There's all this argument about where Which side should get all the deck chairs and finally after because these guys don't get along very well. They say I tell you what we'll put half the chairs over here And half the chair's over there. And everybody's all excited and saying, yeah, wow, that's great because it's, you know, some of those chairs are kind of hard to move and they're not as comfortable. So we've moved, we've we've cut a deal on the deck chairs. Meanwhile, the Titanic, the U.S. economy, um, is taking on water and we're patting ourselves on the back. At At least we're still moving. Um, but, I mean, um, this is the first budget
0: we've seen in the Obama administration, theoretically.
5: Well, and there's a lot of, that's, that, that there is, well, yes and no. Every year we've had appropriations bills, and that's what constitutes the real budget. But, but uh, we've got a budget. But a continuing resolution, resolution a continuing
0: resolution does not show. A perspective of spending coming out of the administration, which is something we've not had in over six years. What
5: a budget resolution does, and that's what we now have, is it sets it sets a ceiling on spending. Right. And we've had a couple of ceilings that we've got to in awkward and strange ways. We've spent what we spent, um, and 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 we just can't get too excited here uh, about what we've done. Other than hey, a majority on both parties in the House. That's big. That's big. But remember the, the Titanic.
2: Congressman I,
5: I I think that, that uh, Alan's
2: analogy is perfectly sound. Uh, th- the problem is, what do you do elsewise? I mean, if you don't do this, what do you do? You go back to doing nothing, which is what uh, I think the result would have been. So this is uh, a, a timid approach. Uh, it doesn't solve all our problems. Those are yet to be faced. But uh, I, I think that's not a reason to criticize this particular proposal. Bob Hines. I, I kind of
3: think that the real test is as, as whether we can keep getting, you know, making deals and getting things done is going to come with the deficit. That's going to have to be enlarged. And we've got about six or eight weeks before it comes due. And that's going to be the real test if they're able to find a way to uh, raise the debt ceiling.
0: Well, the debt ceiling, some inside the Beltway are saying that that deal might have already been at least greased a little bit with this budget deal. That there may have been some backdoor or backroom talks saying, look. We'll give in to allowing an increase of $63 billion over the next two years, an increase in spending, but don't fight us on debt limit ceiling. You're at, you're at your credit limit. Well, it's, anything is possible
3: in the way they go, go about it these days, but the fact of the matter is the biggest problem we've got is going to be, it, it, it is going to be used, and both parties are going to be struggling to find ways to change some of the spending is going to come with the debt ceiling.
0: Denise crap.
4: the debt ceiling and the farm bill. The fact that they punted the farm bill in January needs to believe That yes, he's had some reason going on. So if he's got the budget deal that's now going, he's got DOD that hasn't passed yet. You know, the farm bill that hasn't passed yet. He's got a couple of others. So yes, there, there's going to be some give and take. The question is, who's going to get and who's going to lose?
5: Alan Moore. It's interesting to think about what both sides thought they got, um, and I think everybody realizes they didn't. They didn't get much, and they got things that are not necessarily obvious on the face, because the outlines of this particular proposal are so modest. They're not nothing; they're just very modest at, at these particular times. So why do the why do the Democrats vote for, especially since? even though it was outside the realm of the bill, there was nothing on extending, still again, these unpaid-for unemployment benefits, but that, that have uh, great importance to a lot of people and a lot of emotional and political resonance. Um, why did the Republicans, uh, who watched their, their, the, the spending limitations that would have stayed in effect, have, have they uh, voted against this thing, uh, why did they vote for it? Well, it's pretty interesting, I think, if you if you reflect upon it. It's not because of the failure to do the big stuff. Nobody had a stomach for that, sadly. Um, and I'm well aware of that. Uh, this was the best deal that could be gotten for now. There was no good alternative, so you have to vote for it if it's out there. Um, but but the, the, the Democrats don't want to have to deal with the continuing fight on keeping government going. They didn't want to fight this again in January and then in February or March and then fight it over the debt limit and limp along a couple of months at a time. The Republicans wanted to get this stuff up the table so that Obamacare can continue to be in the forefront and collapse politically and substantively, as we're seeing, on its own. We don't know whether that ship is going to right itself, but it, it, it's got many, many problems ahead. The, 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 the website being fixed, fine. People can now get inside the room, and now the, the fundamental structure is, uh, is being called into question.
0: But, Alan, Alan Moore, when we talk about the spending, the one thing that we're hearing about is the fact that the biggest loser in all this is, in fact, DOD. Is DOD the big loser no, right
5: now? No, 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 no. Oh, DOD, <laughs> under the old uh, sequester, which was law, was subject to another round of major cuts. What this did was put off those cuts, the second round of sequester, and it restored a good chunk of the original sequester that's been in effect for this past year. Does it have problems and challenges? You bet it does. Is this what the DOD necessarily wanted? No. But it doesn't have to face that next round, and it gets some back back that it lost in the first round. So this was something that was very important to a lot of Republicans that it restored some important funding to DOD. But, uh,
1: uh,
0: Congressman, now the the Democrats are saying that one of the big issues that was not addressed in this budget deal that is now, in fact, going to go away, it appears, is the unemployment benefits that will not go past December 28. There's a lot of people on the Democratic side that's saying this is the possible worst thing to happen in this deal. It's going to affect the economy. It's going to affect the middle class. And it's going to affect an already weak job market.
2: Well, and I would also think that it might affect uh, how people vote, uh, you know, come the next election. Somebody who is uh, didn't get their unemployment and can't feed their kids is going to remember that. So it's going to have some political. Is this is,
0: is 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 that going to have enough reverberation with this leading into 2014 and midterms? Is this enough to have
2: the Democrats a little bit nervous? Uh, well, I think I think everybody after there ought to be nervous. They have, who's 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 the hero of, of the last. This Congress in the last year, uh, right now it looks like, like John Boehner. Maybe Boehner, I was going to say. At least he, at least he spoke out. Uh, I, I want to get this in. I've said this once before, but we keep talking about. Well, they haven't dealt with Medicare, and they haven't dealt with Social Security, and they haven't dealt with something, and they, and they certainly haven't. Uh, and they need to, but I hope they don't do it in in some giant pool of issues that they've done before and what I've said before is we need to go back to the committee system and we need to deal with those things so that you can start your compromises small and subcommittee and work them forward rather than having this giant mess on your hands and uh, and, and surprise everybody uh, with, with what you finally come up with. Bob Hines.
3: What Al is saying is exactly right. What they call it up on the Hill is regular order. The committees do their work. The committees that are expert in various areas do the work that has to be done and bring it to the floor of the House and the Senate. And those things have to be done. And if they get back to doing the governmental work in the way the system is meant to work and let the expert members try to find negotiated differences and smooth things out and and reduce the debt and make sure the benefits continue at a reasonable rate. That's what we have to do, and the only way to do it is to go back to the what they call a regular order up there and let the committees do their work.
0: Carl Tuvin.
6: Uh, Al's right. Both people in this unemployment insurance are going to be hurt, Republicans and Democrats. Sandy Levin was on <coughs> TV this morning, and he was begging his... Fellow members, uh, uh, to go to unemployment offices, go to uh, job uh, offices, and talk to the people, and 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 then go back to Boehner. He asked Boehner to bring this up. Boehner said, "No, can't be brought up." Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, everybody's to blame. He also talked about taxes, and uh, and he's, he indicated that the Ways and Means Committee has been working on tax reform, and we could see it sometime, possibly in the first quarter of 2014.
1: <clears throat> Denise Kraut. Your
4: unemployment is going to be compounded by the fact that you've got a lot of folks coming off of active duty. So if they're all coming off of active duty because we're coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan, what jobs are they going into there? And if they don't have the jobs, and you already have high unemployment, you're going to have an even higher unemployment, and now you're going to have higher unemployment with military veterans. And if they've got military veterans with medical issues, now you've got an even worse situation because they're going to be putting pressure on the VA. The VA is already failing. So, have they thought about the next five to ten years of what assistance the VA is going to need and what assistance those people are going to need to acclimate and get back into civilian life? Carl Tuvan, that's
5: a very good.
6: That's a very good point. And and there are there are new a few new organizations actually structured to help veterans when they come home uh, who can who can go to work and, and looking at what they've done in the military to see where they fit in the in the in the workplace. Gosh, I, can, for now.
2: I can understand the glee that the Republicans have over the botched rollout of uh, Obamacare. I haven't any problem understanding that at all. And it did draw the public's attention away from the deep mess the Republican Party was in uh, before <clears throat> now, it seems to me that where the Republican Party wants to go is they want to march right back into what had them be- made them so unpopular before, and I guess they're they're hoping that that Obama will make another class, you know, major goof so that they they can cover that up. I think that the Republicans, if they carry out the plan that they're talking about especially with veterans coming home and not, all of that, I think that they're going to be right back where they were before the Obamacare uh,
1: disaster. What, what, what <laughs> plan are you
2: talking about that
5: they're going to implement? Alan Moore? <clears throat> saying if they have their plan, what, what plan are we talking about
2: here? Have you been listening to the Republicans up there? Yeah. They're against this, they're against that, they're going to cut this, they're going to cut that, they're going to... You know they're they're doing it all along. It's standard Republican rhetoric. Got him into terrible trouble before. The it's thing, going to get him into trouble again. The
1: thing that
5: got him into trouble, i I'm still, we really don't need to, to, to beat this dead horse. You're talking as though there's just some combined point of view, which which was confusing me because 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 I don't know what there is. The thing that really got him into trouble was this intransigence, this intransigence, and in shutting down the government, which which hurt them. Enormously, um, the, the the public right now hates both parties. The president's at historic lows. The Congress is down in the toilet. Both parties. Um, so in, in in that regard, the and, and and everyone is still fearful for the future. The hard hard choices that 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 need to be made, they just continue to punt. When we talk about regular order, the thing that this budget that's this budget committee and compromise had at least a glimmer of hope for, and it's not a surprise that it collapsed, was that it would set some parameters on spending, on Medicare, on Social Security in a broad way, and then turn it back to the committees of both houses to say, here's your five-year revenue and spending plan for Medicare, revenue and spending plan for Social Security, you got the rules of a budget resolution to help you get it through. Go to it. Tell us how to do it. I totally agree with, with you, Al, that you don't want some super committee to do all the details. But the 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 committees of jurisdiction need stronger guidance that's, that's provided in some sort of a bipartisan way.
0: Yeah, but now, where's that guidance going to come from, though, Alan? That's the big question. I agree with you. No, no, no. no. But I agree with you when you say, you know, what plan... The Republicans certainly don't have a plan, and the plan that anybody said that they had, shutting down the government for two and a half weeks, backfired horribly oh, on the
5: GOP. That's exactly right. Meanwhile, we're, 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 what we're ending up doing now is still talking about unemployment benefits. Let's we'll talk about those just for a second. We've been extending them and extending them and extending them, and there are a lot of people who are who are, are who continue to be really hurting. Unemployment benefits are paid by taxes. Well, it used to be, but now we've totally exhausted the unemployment insurance funds in the states and in the federal government, so it's just being added to deficit spending. Does everybody who's on employment and has been for a long time have equal need? No, not at all. Um, But we're now creating sort of unemployment benefits for life. Rather than saying they end, we've got other programs to pick up based on need, but, that,
0: that but people, that's, that's what strikes me. I will tell you right now, that's what strikes me as odd, is you've already gotten 99 weeks of, of, of just, you know, given out unemployment benefits that were already extended under President George W. Bush. The reality is, is now there are other social programs that have the funding to at least assist you, but... You also have to hear what the Democrats are saying, such as Sandy Levin out of Michigan, who are coming back and saying, look, the reality is this economy is not strong enough to sustain solid growth in the job market without this assistance.
5: The reality is that every that, 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 that the situation varies all over the country. There are some places that are deep pockets of long-term unemployed And they want to... I.E. Michigan. I.E. Michigan. And it's not the case in in many other parts of the country. So the question from a policy standpoint is, are we going to retain the system of unemployment insurance and how it's paid for that we've we've historically had, or are we going to toss it over and simply say, if you get unemployed, you can basically have unemployment benefits for life. Now, the, the administration's plan in all of this is a little bit murky. They want to simply increase the minimum wage so that all these people, if they're lucky enough to have a job, oh boy, they'll get they'll get but, another two, three dollars. I think we should raise the minimum wage to twenty dollars. But an Congressman Now, so that people can really have a good life. Oh wait, would that have an impact on employment? Gee, maybe shoot so. it maybe up. Maybe we need to
0: think about it. But that. Congressman Now, you know, going to Alan's point, when you sit there and you hear the congressmen that are talking about the unemployment issue, the unemployment benefits being extended past ninety nine weeks, past December 28th, we're not hearing it from people in states like Texas, like Florida, like uh, even Montana or North Dakota, where there are booms. They're begging for people to come there to fill what would be seeing livable wage jobs in those communities. How do you offset that,
2: or can you? What you just described is a problem that needs to go to a committee who has the expertise in these areas and can begin to... I think the idea that there are social programs that may be able to step in and ameliorate some of this problem, uh, that's a good point. I don't know what those programs are, but I'm sure they they exist. But you you give it to the whole Congress, and let me tell you, 535 people do not know how to do that. There are probably two dozen people in Congress who know how to do that, and they are the ones that need, or maybe maybe a little more, they, they need to get down in their committee work and find those things and, and make it work.
0: But Congressman, Al, let, me, let me ask you this question. Is there not some sort of personal accountability? If I am living in Washington, D.C., I cannot find a job, but I can find a job in Topeka, Kansas... Wouldn't it make sense for me to go to Topeka, Kansas? I I hear people who are qualified for jobs that decide, well, I'm not going to go there. I don't want to live in Topeka, Kansas. What happened to the idea of go where the money is? We did it under the Roosevelt administration.
4: But the assumption that you can sell your house to do that. A lot of people are being bound by their house because their houses are so far under the market. They can't afford to do that. If they did that, they'd have to declare bankruptcy first. But
0: again, but again, there are programs in the federal government and programs from banks that were mandated under TARP that allow for at least a partial restructuring or a partial forgiveness to do that. Yeah, but, but Justin, you're, you're, you're
2: talking about unemployment comp and these kind of things as though it were a normal context in terms of the economy. And as Bernice, as Denise just pointed out, or, or, or Carol or... A combination Tony, of Ben
0: Bernanke and Denise Krupp. God, Denise. wonderful.
1: <laughs> the, the,
2: I think maybe people understood my point Yeah, before I screwed up her name. Uh, The point was that we are in in a situation in which the economy is in rotten shape to be the support of all of this, and we need to do something for those people. Well,
0: I'm going to let that be the last word, uh, because we're already over the break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other big news happening uh, out of Washington, and that is the judge's ruling that... The NSA listening in on your phone calls, yeah, that might be considered unconstitutional. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be, America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelly's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make combinations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Backroom, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Kelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. here live at Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics live in the nation's capital. When we left, we were just talking about the budget deal. We're going to change gears now, talk a little bit about a ruling that came out of the federal court system uh, yesterday where uh, U.S. District Court Judge Richard Leon found that the programs being undertaken by the NSA in keeping all of the phone records of individuals here in the United States and internationally are cons- or could be construed as unconstitutional. It was, he was acting on a lawsuit that was brought by civil libertarians, uh, but it, uh, Leon issued a preliminary injunction barring the NSA from collecting metadata pertaining to, in this case, Verizon accounts of several clients. This is a huge blow to the Obama administration. Uh, Congressman Al, this is just a bad week for the White House, just getting even worse. But this is going to come back and bite the Obama administration in the rear end,
2: do you think? Yes. Why? I, I was appalled to find out, and I don't know where I've been. I'll probably be reading the funny papers, but to find out that we've got a, a kind of kangaroo court, a, a secret court that uh, isn't answerable to anybody, and uh, I don't know who makes it all up, but they seem to uh, find that everything is uh, it, it needs to be secret, and they're the ones who are, who are adjudicating these things. Well, that in, on its face is wrong, I and mean, it's structured wrong. Uh, and uh, so, yes, I think... Uh, that that, uh, I I think something needs to be done about that. But but let me ask another question, which we don't have to answer right now, because I know you want to go somewhere else, but what in the hell do they do with all of this information? I mean, my God, they have got tons and tons and megatons of information, how can they possibly sort through it and find out anything?
0: Well, the, in, in this case, the federal government has, uh, has tried to uphold the idea that the information, the metadata that they collect, has offset the risk of terrorist activity against the United States, both both domestically and abroad. Uh, Alan Moore, you know, when you hear, and I want to read real quick uh, Judge Leon's uh ruling on this, he said, I and I quote, I cannot imagine a more indiscriminate and arbitrary invasion than this systematic and high tech collection and retention of personal data on virtually every single citizen for the purposes of querying it and analyzing it without judicial approval. Here, here. That is a stunning, stunning strike against the NSA. Alan Moore.
5: Well look, this is this is on its way to the Supreme Court, there are there are several cases pending in other federal courts. He found in favor of the, the plaintiff here, made these comments in a lengthy opinion, and, and then he suspended his decision, acknowledging that this needs to go up the chain. Now now and it and it's appropriate that that occur. Uh, Al was not real friendly to the 15 federal court judges who sit in the so-called FISA court. It's a secret court because they talk about secret stuff, but we shouldn't, it, it, it's an odd setup because you only hear from one side in this case, but calling it a kangaroo court is pretty, Pretty harsh I, I wait well, minute well,
0: wait a minute, do, wait a minute wait, wait, there's one factor there's one factor there's one wait a a minute, there's order. one factor in here that that the government did bring up is that they're basing their actions off of a I think it was like a 1970s uh, ruling Smith v Maryland which basically said police do not need a warrant to install a device which recorded the numbers dialed on a particular phone line
5: there's, there's some sense. That's, that's a huge stretch, and there's no question about 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 taking that one well, decision. I just want to say one thing about okay, it, real quick why we do this and what we're doing. What we're doing is we're going to the phone companies who 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 have a record for a period of time on all calls that are made over their system. Then that stuff is destroyed because the volumes are too great. And the federal government said, you know something, we need to retain that stuff because. Several months late after the fact, we may discover that there's somebody in Yemen who's been talking to somebody in Saudi Arabia who's talking to some folks in in Ohio, and we want to be able to have the ability to the have, triangulate, to have the raw material available right. in 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 a safe place that we're not relying on the Verizon's of the world or the ATMs or the Sprints to. To, to maintain that data. We're going to pull it into our place, and then we're going to go after it when there is a particular reason to. Now, I think there are interesting legal questions, but it's not like there's a bunch of guys just fooling around with that data and looking at our phone calls. Well, Denise Krepp disagrees.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. First of all, the FISA
4: court's now beginning to come out and say, maybe we have some concerns. And they have some concerns because they have to absolutely, utterly trust the federal government for all the information. So nobody can contest the federal government. You know, so our legal system is based on of the premise that both sides have the opportunity to argue, and both sides have the ability to have almost all of the same information. So if you're setting it up where one side gets pretty much 90, 95 percent of the information. You can't balance that out. You can't say, Yes, I think this is right or no, I don't you know, I I think this is wrong. So yeah, I think that kind of crazy. The other thing I think is crazy is the fact that if you're gonna write a legal opinion, just put your name on it and be honest about it. Judge
1: Leon did. No, no,
4: no, no. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the FISA court yeah. and I'm talking about all of those decisions. If you are going to put your if you're gonna come out and make a decision, put your name on it. But Denise But Denise, you're
0: now you're now getting into the realm of where's the fine minute line but where's the fine minute line there are certain pieces of information that the american public does not need to be put out in the open regarding national security of the FISA court
4: else can it out. Republicans the, I, I will say that they did. But no, they did Republicans
0: will not. say that they did that the FISA court if the FISA court is now
4: saying that they don't trust the US government then I've got a problem because that's what the FISA court is now saying the, the, the FISA, a problem.
0: Well, how is the FISA court saying that they don't trust the federal government
4: because they're not sure if the federal government's giving them all of the accurate information and if you can't trust that then you have
0: a problem Bob Hines
4: I can't say I disagree with that
0: Really?
2: Yes.
0: Why? Because I mean, there, there's legal precedent. If we're going if to go legality... If you
1: ask,
2: you'll never know.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there's that.
1: I mean, you
3: know, we have to find a way. Obviously, we want to be sure that we are, within reason, we are trying to protect Americans wherever they are and, and, and watch out for people who may be in the country, who may... Be talking to people who they who are problem problems and bad people. Okay, fine. I understand that. But we have to find a system, and I don't know how to do it. And I don't pretend I know how to
1: do it. But I don't think the
3: idea that this you can have anything you want and talk to, and, and just have the whole damn world come, you know,
6: just
0: Carl Tubman
3: all together. It's, just, it's just blows my mind. I can't
0: figure out how to stop it. Carl
6: Toobin. You know, these decisions can't be can't be stopped. I mean, the court has a certain order and you, you make, you file and you having to get decisions like this. I think, I think in a, in a, in a situation where we have government agencies trying to figure all this out and where you have Congress having hearings to try to figure all this out and then this happens, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that this doesn't slow down the whole process, where we might be, we might be, we might be heading for something positive to come out of all this.
2: Congressman Now, I, uh, I agree with with Alan that the term kangaroo court was a very poor analogy because that implies a whole bunch of things that don't apply in this instance. But I can't think of another term because I don't think we have any other courts like this. Who that rely only on the government information and they're supposed to make decisions on that and then we don't know what the decisions are and on and on and on. So strike kangaroo court, talk about
0: But Congress we, we need a
2: new name for this court.
0: But we we, we have a name American court.
2: they okay. I'll, oh, geez, I'll Wait a minute
0: wait. we let me just jump in no. one thing. I let me ask one question here is we sit here and we say we don't have a court we do have a court the FISA court is comprised of appointed judges that, that have legal authority 15
5: federal judges this is that's why I took issue with the term a kangaroo court the, the rules were set because of the nature of the of the material having said that this is all out of the open so what now happens is whatever the whatever the courts decide we're going to have the entire Congress now involved in any decision-making going forward. This brings up the question of what this whole business is all about. Is it in any way legal to retain all this information in a particular place, owned and controlled by the U.S. government, currently in the, in, in, in the sole possession of the private sector providers, Is it worth retaining it? And if it's worth retaining it, it's worth retaining it in a safe way. And then you need specific, clear, legal, by all stretches, rules on how you can access it. That stuff has all been in a cloud. So, I mean, I myself think it's a good idea to keep this information. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that they felt that they had to be so secretive. They left themselves so vulnerable. But my guess is that... When all is said and done when we're finished with this, we're going to authorize the collection, and we're going to have very clear lines drawn around who can get access, under what terms you can get access, and so on. And in the the course of that, one thing that this judge said was he didn't see any evidence that we'd ever been able to use this information to hit anything off if the government can't make a better case on that score they're going to have to they're going to have but to I do think, some but, stuff. but
0: i think there's a problem here the judge's ruling says that the government did not present evidence that it had thwarted it all the reality is is that the stuff that the government could present could only be presented
5: in a secure environment with those with the clearances
1: have they that. have
5: ways to deal with that and they're going to have to if they want to if they, if they want to have the right in the future this is this is the, the, the Snowden legacy um, once we know you can't put it back in the box so now we have to deal with the world as we know it and decide: is, do we want to pay to collect all this data and set rules for how we can
0: use it and who can use it interesting Congressman you are just ready to just jump.
2: Well, I just keep thinking that, that it seems to me that a fundamental aspect of American law is that you, you, you need a reason to believe uh, when you want to go into somebody's house. When you, you know, and, and, and that we have a process for that to 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 know that all six of us sitting around this table have our telephone records kept somewhere that people can look at and what have you. <clears throat> what possible reason would they have to believe that any one of us has anything that would be beneficial in, in, a, in, a, in a case like Phineas Crap? And I
4: don't think they have that. I mean, When you go to law school, you take two classes: criminal procedure, which talks about procedure, and then criminal law, which talks about your case law in and of itself. And you learn a lot about the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. And again, it's all about the law. And in law school, you learn about cases. So all of a sudden, we've now moved from not maybe talking about cases. Now maybe it's just policy. We've established policies. But what does it tell you to the lawyer? So are you supposed to rely on the law or are you supposed to rely on policy? Well I can tell you as a lawyer, I'd much rather rely on the law because I'll know what the legal decision looks like than rely on somebody's policy that could change on a whim depending on now, who the But
0: now but now are you not hindered by the court system itself? You would now from what some activists have said, particularly some in the ACLU, is look, we don't have a problem with that, get a warrant. But if you were to get a warrant for Every one of the metadata pieces that they collect, you would have literally a file cabinet that would take up all of the District of Columbia
4: of our government. Our founding fathers said there were three parts of this government. There was the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. They were supposed to balance each other out. And the judicial works, though. No, the judicial is not working if nobody knows about it. Especially Congress apparently didn't know about it because they didn't bother telling Congress about it. They knew got Congress authorizing money that they didn't realize they authorized for courts that they didn't know existed. And the courts that did exist, apparently they didn't exactly trust the federal information that they got from the government. So no, it's not working.
0: But this brings up a much bigger, bigger question now. Bob Hines, does Edward Snowden look like a whistleblower as opposed to a possible treasonous individual? Well,
2: can you be both?
0: You can be both, number one. But But one man's treason is another man's whistleblowing.
3: Well, my view of the matter, if you're talking about that particular individual,
0: I think that he is way out of line.
3: And uh, if he really is a whistleblower, let him come back and make his case.
0: And I don't think he can. Well, he's, the White House has already stated after the ruling that, in fact, Edward Snowden will face felony charges should he ever return back to the United States. This also calls into question Glenn Greenwald, the, uh, the, uh, the so-called journalist uh, out of England. Who then came back and has been the catalyst for bringing all of this forward? Does Greenwald have some responsibility here, Al?
5: Yeah, this is this whole question of of if a journalist traffics in illegal information, information he has no right to hold, and and uh, should should he be subject to prosecution? And this is still an open question. Um, It's, you know, the the definition of journalist has changed. (laughs) Greenwald is interesting. He actually had been living in Brazil, and now he's going to apparently start this new alternative news entity funded by the PayPal founder. Um, He's a lawyer by training himself. Um, He's uh, he's, he's a curious journalist. Somehow he got this information, and I'm not real comfortable with the thought that he's got all of this stuff and that he is making the decision on what to put out and what not to put out. You know, remember, there's a lot of embarrassing stuff that came out in terms of listening in on Andrea Merkel's cell phone calls, stuff that, that is harmful to America. Snowden broke the law. We debated months ago whether that was treason or not, and whether it, what his intent was. It certainly wasn't money, and it, it, see, he's trying to call attention to and change a policy. Let's give him that. Um, that doesn't give him the right to break the law. And it doesn't give, in my mind, the people that he hands illegal information to the right automatically to publish it. And I'm not comfortable with the journalistic standards of a lot of these these new journalism entities that simply decide, yeah, we're going to put that out. Carl Tubin.
6: The only thing that really concerns me and should concern all of us is what has this done? To the security of the United States of America, and and I think the more we get into this, and the less that NSA thinks it might be able to do, the, the more harm that could happen to this country in the immediate future. And and they talk about harm about uh, some of our people overseas, spies, etc., in the different places. And I think that should be a, a top concern. Bob Hines.
3: The only real, you know, the real judgment here is what what is it that we need to know in order to protect ourselves? And what, I think that's, but, but, a re, that's a reasonable judgment. You know, and, and where people want to draw that line, I understand there's some different views than that. But we really have to find a way to not just get every
0: piece of information in the universe and say we have to have it. Yeah. But Bob Hines, but you but know, here's you, you the, here's the, the problem with that. But here's the problem with that analysis. In my opinion, it's the fact is that random piece of data that we have could be the missing piece to a puzzle, to a much larger puzzle of terroristic activities. Yeah. So right, how fine. do we determine this is this may be innocuous, but Combined with this and this, okay, we now have yeah, a national a, security they, question.
3: Let's say people, have been, let's say they've got my telephone calls for the last 20 years. Boy, they're going to get look at, a
0: bunch of garbage. Really. Now, uh, why would they keep it? So you got to use some of the crap I say on yeah, the phone. So yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah, but why would they keep it? Once they realize that I am just a stupid klutz, and I have nothing interest at all to say, and I'm not a, I'm not a terrorist, I've never saw, they should just forget about
1: but, it. But,
5: but uh, Alan Moore, <laughs> go ahead. Hey. I think we flatter ourselves to think that there's some system that can be put into place that could make individual decisions about whose data to keep and who's not. It's a lot easier to take everything from Verizon and put it into storage in Utah and then decide down the road that here's a phone number that we want to check. If If we start filtering them all, we would be spending... Many, many, many more billions of dollars of wasted funds. The 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 alternative. I mean, we we could say we'll let the companies decide what to do with their data. We'll let them destroy it after three months or six months or however long they stay. We could tell them we could order them and and reimburse them for the cost of keeping everything scattered around all over the place, or we could say. Send it in. We're going to keep it here.
0: We have a phone call.
5: I think we need to authorize that, pay for that, and set rules for using it. We
0: have a caller. Caller from the 203. You're on the air. Caller? Caller? No caller. Okay. Um, Where do these phantom callers come from? They dial in and they put up, hey, I want to talk to you guys. So hopefully 203 will call back. Um, when When we... Look back at this, though. The reality still dictates that, Bob Hines, going back to your, to your point, look, I'm not saying anything that would be construed as terroristic. I love my government. I support and took an oath to uphold the Constitution of several states and the U.S. government. However, that's not to say that today I'm fine with it. Tomorrow I might snap and say, I want to, and for those of you guys listening up in Fort Meade, this is just hypothetical. I'm just trying to prove a point. Let's get this out of the way. Tomorrow, I might snap and say, hey, I want to go pull a pin on something outside a federal building in Cleveland. Not true, by the way. Not true. Just get that clear. But I would rat you out. I know you would. (laughs) And and, and trust me, the line of people that would do that goes all the way down Pennsylvania (laughs) Avenue. Uh, (laughs) Penny's crap
4: what Carl
1: does
4: and is, you know, the concern about the United States, to me it's, we're not a military society. You know, we are not a law enforcement country. We are a democracy. And I, like you, also wore that uniform, and I swore to uphold the Constitution of the United States. But I did so because I knew that there were rights, and I knew that everybody in the United States has those rights, and they were protected by the judicial system. And
0: they are protected by the but judicial I system. The FISA
4: courts are a part of the judiciary. But I do not believe that, that that court system. You know, when you look at Lady Justice, she's got a you know a weight system, and everything's supposed to be equal. I think that there is a very strong. Finger that's put on one of those scales right now, and we've got to figure out how to take that finger off in such a way. So you know what?
0: I, I believe I believe as a resident of the District of Columbia, I'm not representing. So you know, I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to pay my income tax. And you know what? I don't think that the tax courts of the United States have any bearing. Same thing. It is a court. It is a court of law.
1: No, 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 no. no, no, no.
0: no, no, no oh, no, no, why not?
5: What? No, 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 no. A court with the rules that are different from most
0: courts. But, but it is still, it is still an arm of the judiciary. As we can't I have overs- said four times. <laughs> Fifteen
5: <laughs> federal judges. I agree oh. with you, but, but I got four people here that don't. No, 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 no. But it operates by a different set of rules that are that are in that are direct, on the books as law. That are in direct conflict with how courts in America typically work. The, the, this cat is out of this bag, no matter what the Supreme Court decides. My guess is that because it's all public now, the Congress is going to probably authorize a system that's very much like what we're now doing, but, but it will have the force of law in a much different way than under the current system.
0: Carl, do you have the last word? But
6: Congress authorized this. They had, they supposedly had briefings with members. Whether the members went or not is immaterial. But they were briefed on all this all along the way.
5: Intelligence committee, absolutely, they knew, and some of them used their knowledge to draw stuff out of questions in, in the Congress. No. Well, we're
0: going to let that be. We're going to let that. We're going to let that be the last word uh, when we come back. Uh, And obviously, this is going to be a subject we're going to talk about for months down the line. But when we come back, this is our last show of the year. And as a result, uh, we're going to take the next hour and talk about all the big stories that happened in 2013 and go through each of the members of the panel here today and talk about exactly what your top two were. And we'll talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelly's room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics, premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's back room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection, that will blow your mind. They've got Island scotches, they've got Island Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
2: Hi.
1: We're back
0: here live at Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and it's our end-of-the-year show where we're talking about all things that happened in 2013, Uh, the big political news over the year, and this is kind of our going away gift to ourselves where we can talk about anything we really want to, but uh, we'd like to keep it relevant to politics if we can, and, oh, Carl, we'd like to keep it to politics in this decade. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks So, that being said uh, Congressman now what was one of the big stories you had this year?
2: That I had or that I think occurred
0: that, that, what, what was one of the big stories that you felt would happen in 2013 politically? Oh, well,
2: I, I, I would say If you can combine them Both parties uh, have managed to do themselves a great deal of damage the Republicans by shutting down the government, uh, and Obama by uh, botching the rollout of the uh, uh, Obamacare. I think those were uh, were terribly important, both in a policy sense, but also in a political sense, because uh, they're going to, uh, that politics is going to roll on for a while.
0: Um, in both cases. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second, because, you know, Bob Hines, Congressman Al kind of put those two together. And were they intertwined in many instances this year?
3: Well, I don't know that they were intertwined, but they were... which is just, I think, the first huge pothole that the Democrats are going to fall into. I think there are several other problems within the Obamacare legislation that are going to continue to fall apart. Well, I mean, people's insurance, insurance rates are going to go up hugely, I'm afraid. And there's not going to be enough of the younger people who feel
5: invincible who are going
3: to join into the, into the program. The, the older people and the sicker people are going to be going into it and it's going to it's going to be a, a financial disaster I'm afraid and that really concerns me the other question about the parties uh, is is one of the things that bothers me the most and as a um, as a guy who came up here as a, in 1964 as a, you know, a moderate moderate and mainstream Republican from Ohio
1: uh, and uh,
3: I think I'm about the same place today as I was then.
1: I am just constantly uh, appalled, person, at the way
3: the Tea Party people operate. And we can talk about it later in more detail. But it just, it's
1: just, it just is so destructive of the political process. Now I understand that um,
3: you know I'm not going to talk about some of the crazy things that the like Democrats do, but you know the Republicans, from my standpoint. Uh, some of the Republicans have really, really... Uh,
1: the Tea Party folks are just, are just the kind of
3: folks who say, if it isn't done the way I want it, I'm going to destroy it. And that's just a terrible problem, and I think the Republicans are going to be suffering from that, and we'll talk about it later,
2: I hope, in more
6: detail. Carl Tubman. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going to have to leave early. I think that, uh, I think that you, the hits that the President has taken over the last year uh, in, in all areas, in the healthcare care area, in and foreign policy, uh, and then some of the things that John Kerry has tried to do recently um uh, made the President's popularity take a tumble. If some of these things work out uh, and, and some of these things go away, uh, I think the popularity of the President can rebound in 2014.
0: But, I mean, 2013 was a horrible, horrible year for the White House. I mean, Denise Krepp, I mean, just hemorrhaging polling numbers. You've got a president that is losing credibility both on the House and in some instances his own party. That's not a good place for the president to be. Does he wish every morning he gets up, is it 2014 yet? Well,
4: just, he forgot he's standing right next to him, and that's called Congress. I mean, Congress now had it right. It's not just the president. His numbers are there. It's Congress. And by the way, it's the House and the Senate. When you close down the government for two weeks because you can't get along, then you're in trouble. And you're going to be in trouble
1: because people can't pay their bills. And they're going to remember that in 2014. So it's not just the president. It's everybody.
0: Carl Tubin. I just,
6: I just want to say uh, two more things. Uh, number one, <clears throat> um, I think John Boehner has forgiven a
1: credo uh, for
6: coming out the other day and saying what he did to the people who are the backers of the Tea Party. He was strong. He, I, I had wished he had done this six months ago. Uh, we might have had a different outcome in a lot of things this year.
1: And the other thing is that uh,
6: to say no to most things that that the president wanted to bring up. And, and and that is
1: something that's bad. Well, we're
0: gonna take we're gonna take a quick break here. We've got brand new technology that we're working with here, so we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we'll fix the technology situation because we're going to a high tech. The sound is good. We're just gonna make the microphone sync up a little bit better. So just stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. Wow, a little bit of fat Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified, with some of the best-known brands, and some that you might even know, but... You might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to... Opus X Lost City They have a cigar for everybody Mild, medium, strong, heavy However you want to smoke it It's available here at Shelly's Back Room
1: Come in, have Bob, Nah,
0: or any one of the girls Show you what the right cigar might be For your taste that evening Again, Shelly's Back Room 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it It is definitely the place to be you can tell the mailman not to
1: call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town, Damn. get around, no. Tell the mailman not to call. He's coming home until the fall. And then again, I might not get home at all. Sooner's back in town. Oh, that woman's back in town. Oh, my, 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 my.
0: And we're back here live from Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. Looks like we've got all the technical issues all worked out. Uh, Brand new audio system, which we're going to continue to update as we go forward in our fourth year. But uh, we were talking before the break uh, about the big news stories out of 2013. Congressman Al brought up the idea that uh, the Obama administration had a miserable 2013. You brought up the the government shutdown and the rollout of Obamacare. I want to talk a little bit about the the, the shutdown real quick, Alan, though. I mean, uh, the, the president's getting a lot of heat for the government shutdown, uh, saying that he didn't show leadership, he didn't show the right abilities to strike deals before government leadership. At the same time, Democrats are saying that the Republicans were predestined to shut this puppy down. Is this a somewhere in the middle of the truth
5: situation? Well, yeah. So let's look at these two issues together, <laughs> since we've been talking about them that way. The government shutdown was caused by Republicans it was stupid. We said so at the time. A lot of people said so at the time. Most Republicans felt that way at the time. Uh, Speaker Boehner just made a, made a calculated decision to allow this to occur. We, we had a shutdown for, for, for a couple of weeks. Most of government was not shut down. Most federal employees though in a world of uncertainty had to, uh, had to wait to get paid. Most people got paid. That story, though important, is small potatoes. The silver lining to it is it allowed the Republicans to say, we're not doing that again. It contributed to Speaker Boehner having some balls this last week to take on the Tea Party. So there's some silver lining of the shutdown. Obamacare, I'm not seeing the silver lining. That is a much, much bigger story than a two-week shutdown because a disastrous launch. The numbers now that the that the website works are horrendous. There's lots of bad news ahead. Come January, we're going to find that a lot more people lost insurance than picked it up under Obamacare. And the great idea for bringing, getting greater insurance coverage for the first part of next year God knows maybe the entire year there will be fewer people in America insured with Obamacare than were in this past year without. But that's
0: massive. But Bob Bob Hines, let's go back to government shutdown though. I mean, because we're going to talk about the disaster that was Obamacare this year. But the government shutdown itself seemed to... Although it was a great idea for Republicans to say, see, we're going to install fiscal responsibility by putting a lot of people on on uh, on furlough, it, that backfired on the Republicans. The Republicans didn't really, especially the ones in Congress, didn't have a grand year in uh, 2013 as well.
3: Republicans had a terrible year. And they did it to Thank themselves. You. They did it to themselves. You. you know, I, I am... I fundamentally believe that what happened
1: last week,
3: where the speaker uh, was able to marshal a substantial strength in the Republican Party to push the, to support the the budget the budget deal, and when he came out strong against the Tea Party, I think the reason he was able to do so is because some of the people who are waffling back and forth within the Republican Party and are, sometimes they like, the you know, they like the conservatives' point of view of the Tea Party policies, but they have come to decide that the tactics of the Tea Party are totally out of bounds if you're a, a legislative body, and that gave the speaker the opportunity to come down hard on it. I think that was probably the most important thing that happened politically within the Republican Party this year, what Bader did last week. And I Wait. hope he is able to continue to do that because fundamentally the disaster that we have in the Republican Party is just an internal dispute that is going to rip it apart if we're not careful. And I'm really very concerned about it.
0: But Denise, when we, when we talk about politics as a whole. Politics had a bad year in 2013. Uh, the lowest numbers of Obama's presidency hit in the last six months. Congress hasn't seen double-digit approval ratings since 2012 and even then that's pushing it politics into itself has just become this rampant crap show that nobody has any credibility in. Is, is that something that maybe we're starting to see we gotta change that in the, like 2014
4: absolutely Look, I think you're gonna have a lot of people say you know what I can do better you know, these people are going to go home for the, for the holidays and they haven't passed the farm bill, they barely passed a budget bill, they, you know, maybe, maybe not have passed the Department of Defense bill, and they're going to have to explain a lot. And they're going to have to explain a lot to people who are going to say, and look at them, they the face, and I just did a paycheck for two weeks. I couldn't pay my bills. What are you going to do about that? But
0: it comes to now, you know, when we look at the, at the raging circus that was politics in 2013, as a former member of Congress, we're seeing a lot of key members drop out and decide to retire or not seek re-election. Had you been seated in Congress this year, do you think you would have made that decision? It's just too much right now for me to have to deal with on a daily basis?
2: I made that decision 17 years
0: ago.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: but that was during a Republican House.
2: Oh, wait a minute, we got that now. Forget it. We no, no, no. Still, Democrats. still Democrats when I left. But uh, let me t- take an example. Norm Dix from Washington State. Norm Dix is a doer. He wants to get things done. And I think the reason he retired is he looked at the institution and said, this place is going nowhere. And uh, and, and he, he didn't want to sit around pulling his thumbs and waiting for it to straighten itself out, so he left. Uh... I wouldn't be surprised if there are others who are just up to here with the inability to follow regular order, if you will, which is the way you get things
1: done.
3: Well, we just had a couple of retirements announced today. Both one a senior Democrat, Mr. Matheson from Utah, and Frank Wolf, who's a heck of a congressman, a Republican
5: from Northern Virginia. I Both right. of them quit, I think, probably because they're sick and tired of the mess. But but this is but this is on Frank aunt- Wolf's getting up there in age,
1: too. Yes, he is. Yeah. He's not
5: up at your guy's level, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm nobody up there, baby. <laughs>
3: Al we gotta take the
2: Alan on here. We gotta get him in the corner. He's, he's aging too. You yeah. so see to, a lot of grey hair on Alan since yeah, he started gray this show. Gray hair. The, he, the difference was... is he has hair. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very valid.
0: But but Alan Moore, you know, with with the line of succession of people literally starting to check out of Congress, does this make Congress susceptible to even more fringe radical ideas, i.e., Tea Party or the fringe left of the MoveOn.org types.
5: Yeah, you know, this is just movement that slowly continues, um, sadly, um, and uh, I, I don't know where it ends up. Uh, we've got so we've, we've we've talked around this table about uh, about the, the gerrymandered districts that mean safe seats for a particular political party. In most parts of the country, and the new challenge being challenges from within your own party uh, in primaries rather than challenges in the general election. I don't know where that all that all that goes. We're we're sorting it out bit by bit. And and when when I first came to the Senate, it was 19 I went to the Senate it was 1977. The Senate operated in a particular way over the next dozen years, and it evolved and changed. And and then. I came back in 2001 to 2005. It was different. But it functioned today. It's different. But it muddles through. It functions. It's just, But that doesn't mean that if you're in the minority party in the House, it's very much fun. Especially if you've ever been in the majority. Then it's really painful. Uh, the Senate doesn't tend to lose people quite the same way because of... The, the, the individual rights of individual senators are greater, so you don't feel necessarily quite as uh, as marginalized. But it's a different place for the people. It's not as fun for those of us who who knew it in other times. The people there today, for them, this is all they've ever known, and. They don't necessarily hate it. Is it in the best interest of the country? Good Lord, who knows? It doesn't feel very good.
0: Well, let's talk about also, I mean, some of the other subjects that came up. You know, everybody at the beginning of 2013 was talking about immigration. Immigration is going to be the big push this year. But it seems to have gotten trumped by the economy. Bob Hines, did immigration really just go away this year, or it's still hanging in the balance? Well, I don't think it's hanging the balance in the sense that
3: it's likely to uh, be any time in the next year. I don't think we're going to see an immigration bill. I think that's unfortunate. I think it's very poor. We need to clean up our immigration laws. But it's apparently uh, in the House, we, I think we will probably see the House of Representatives pass a series of smaller bills talking about one or two of the problems of the within the immigration issue. But I do not see the House of Representatives being willing to adopt a bill that would have a, a, a pathway to, to citizenship.
0: I think that's unfortunate. I think it's a mistake, but I think that's where it is. But Denise, it almost strikes me that with the Latino community being such a key play, particularly in the upcoming midterms in 2014, that in order to garner strength with the uh... the latino community immigration might be on top four okay.
4: both parties it's in both parties' interest to work with the hispanic uh, population here in the united states because both parties want their vote but in addition to the hispanic caucus which by the way it's very broad, it includes everybody from, from El Salvador to Honduras to Mexico to Argentina. I mean, it, it is incredibly, Cuba. and Cuba, it is an incredibly broad um, area of issue. Yeah. Very diverse. very, very diverse. You also have another uh, group of folks, and that's the farmers, who have come to depend on a um, very strong Hispanic population. I mean, 40 years ago, was California was we talking about Mexican immigrants. Now you've got states like Illinois and North Carolina that are heavily dependent on on the Hispanic population to pick everything from soybeans to strawberries to you know, their chicken farms as well. And they're very concerned about how any reform could impact the farm community. So I think it's something that we're going to be watching. Whether or not it's sitting front
0: and center. Alan Moore, did, did the Republicans lose an opportunity here in the immigration
5: discussions during 2013? Well, <laughs> <laughs> there's deep divides in the House uh, on, on uh, the merits of some of the proposals on the table and some of the contents of, 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 a, of a remarkable omnibus bill that did pass the U.S. Senate. They passed a big bill. The, the House basically said, we're not going to take up that big bill, but we may take up some items selectively. I don't think that idea is totally dead. We've been caught up in the last couple of months with other matters, budget, Obamacare, and NSA, uh, for starters. Um, but uh, I, I think there'll be some efforts, some movement. Uh, I, I, would, I, I would not predict uh, what might come, but it wouldn't surprise me if we, if we got a couple of smaller bills out of the House and, and got at least a couple of pieces, particularly things like the so-called DREAM Act, which, which, which Dream. acknowledges that kids who were brought here by their parents... Who may be here actually, legally... Themselves, They may be here legally, or they may not have ever uh, established legality, uh, maybe uh, because they never purposefully and knowingly broke the law ought to get some different treatment. Uh, there are there are different pieces of this that can be taken up, and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a couple, but uh, uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, Bob Hines, or Denise Kraft, and then Bob Hines.
3: I think Alan is right, as I said earlier, I think we'll see some of these, the the House has about five or six different small pieces of the Senate bill as individual bills, and everyone except the uh, pathway to uh, citizenship probably has a 50-50 chance of of passing, but I think that one I think unfortunately that one does not right now. But I think we will, as Alan says, we will see two or three of those bills passed uh, by the House, and uh, maybe the Senate will pass them as well. That would be excellent.
2: You know, one of the things that we have kind of overlooked in all of this discussion on immigration, we kind of forget people want to come here. I drove in in a taxi this afternoon to come here, uh, and my uh, cab driver was from Somalia. Uh, married to a small woman who had come here ten years before he said. Uh they found each other and got married. He has two sons who are now of course American citizens. And then he said proudly and I became an American citizen last week. Uh and he and I said, Well do you like it here? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, Everybody wants to come here,
1: yeah. you know, uh, so
5: we, we, we look
2: at this almost totally negatively, because it does have economic impacts, political impacts, and other things, and so we need to, to, to be careful about embracing the whole segment. but still,
1: the, the way you avoid...
2: All of these immigration problems is for our economy to go completely under, for this to become an unpleasant nation to live in, uh, and so forth and so on. As long as we continue to be a great place to live, we're going to have people who aren't here who are going to want to come here.
3: Everybody who is sitting around this table as grandparents, great grandparents, or whatever, who brought who came here because this was the great place for opportunity? We all know that. It's a wonderful. No, place. no, no, no,
5: Elizabeth Warren and I are both traced back to the to the American Indians. Oh, oh, wow! No so
3: wonder you have <clears> too much hair. Wow!
5: Oh, I don't even know how to take that,
0: Robert. I feathers. <laughs>
1: feathers. Ow! Ow! What are
0: you doing?
1: Jeez! You know,
0: you know what? I blame you. I blame you, Alan. <laughs> You opened that door for them. Good almighty. Uh, you know what? The, the one issue that, that, that really had a lot of steam moving forward, and it was on the talk of everybody at 20 in the beginning of 2013, was gun control. We had just come off the tragedy at Newtown. We had just seen a huge surge in gun control, at least discussion, and yet it kind of went away unceremoniously. Uh, Denise Krepp, why?
4: Because you had a government shutdown. We had,
0: we had seven months we had seven months before the government shutdown. I don't think the government shutdown had any bearing on it, quite frankly.
4: Why well, I think it did. Why? I was a Are we going to stay open? Are we staying open? Are we staying open? Nope, nope. No, we're not staying open. Nope,
0: nope. We're not getting paid. Alan, you're kind of looking puzzled. Well,
5: there's that passage of eight or nine months in between the two events. (laughs) I'd be a little confused.
0: You don't Um, don't agree. But
5: why did it unceremoniously uh, go away? You know, the the, the politics of gun laws um, uh, continue to defy the logic that a lot of us apply there is so much fear-mongering and such powerful political forces in many parts of the country that even things that make sense to many, like like background checks, including at gun shows,
1: forget everything
5: else. Start with that. Most Americans, the poll shows say, yeah, do some kind of background check, not that that filters out all the, all the crazies by any stretch, and make sure that if we're doing background checks, we include gun, the, the, the gun shows where people can do uh, person to person transactions. An overwhelming majority of America supports that. The, the, so how come we can't enact at least that? Well, two reasons. One... Um, we almost always want more than that uh, in, in the legislature, so we overreach uh, in, in the interest of doing what some people think is right and, and, and maybe to score political points. And secondly, because folks just get nervous at the end that passionate, certain-to-vote people will vote on that issue and put certain candidates in jeopardy. Al went through this as a... <laughs> As a, as a member of Congress over and over again. He's the one who speaks from personal experience.
0: Congressman Al? Well,
2: I think that the, the people who would like to see some kind of rational uh, gun legislation have made a fundamental error in their strategy from the very beginning. And that is,
6: They haven't identified
2: specifically what is the major argument the NRA uses to keep these guys and gals afraid they're going to take away your guns. Now, I don't know of any rational person who is suggesting that we should take away guns in this country. And I think that letting the NRA continue to make that the standard reason. You go home and talk to my hunters and you talk to the guys down at the mill and what have you and and why are they so concerned against gun legislation? They're going to take away my gun. They really need, the, 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 the proponents of gun registration and other issues like that, need to take on fundamental assertion, which is a lie, of the NRA, that we're going to take away their guns. If you could ever convince these people they were not in jeopardy of their guns being taken away, I think you could sell a whole bunch of rational guns. Bob Hines.
3: I agree with Al, but that that would be a big plus but I wonder you know the people, the people who have been saying we need to have some gun registrations or etc you
1: know, never
3: say we're going to take your guns away
1: the, as long
3: as the NRA is going to scare the hell out of, us, out of gun owners I don't know how you can I don't know what you can say to a gun owner that will make him or her believe that the first step of registration is not the first step toward taking your gun away. And I don't know how you do it, but I think you're right. There has to be a way to do it, and I, I think the only way to do it is that every that every effort to to register guns starts with the word, is, we ain't going to take your gun, we just want to register it, so it's
0: it's, it's it's a legal deal. Yeah, but, but Bob Hines... Well, when we but when we, when we talk about this, what we're talking about is a government that has literally tried to say that and every time they say it they're trumped by the NRA. That's right And every time we have like the unfortunate gun violence that we saw in Colorado this past week, uh, it comes back and the discussion starts back at square one. At what point do we sit there and say, wait a minute We've got to stop progressing. It dies off, dies off. Another gun shooting, another senseless violent act happens at a school. Oh, and now now NRA and starts saying they're taking our guns away, and the left starts saying we need to take your guns away because you all are whack jobs. Well, Congressman now. the
2: left doesn't say that. But I've always believed that the advantage conservatives have over liberals is that liberals have an attention span of upwards of 45 seconds. Conservatives can sit in a room and watch the air move. They can repeat themselves over and over and over and over over again and never get bored. And so the NRA is saying they'll take your guns away, they'll take your guns away, they'll take your guns away, they'll take your guns away. And liberals are saying no, we won't and this and this and this they don't repeat it they don't repeat it. there's a reason that some the doesn't go out and buy one television ad a minute and think they've done the job. It is redundancy that changes public opinion and my, my good friends in the pro pro-gun legislation simply, Talking about too many things, they need they need to make that point that the NRA is lying to you. And I would put it this way: they are lying to you when they say that we're going to take your guns away. And uh, I don't think I'll hold my breath until I see that happen.
5: You know, it, it's interesting to to reflect on the politics of of America and how we have. Uh, as we sometimes sit around here, low information voters who are susceptible to uh, exaggeration and argument, and this is one, one example, and you know, I'm thinking of others like, gee, this family is expanding family planning access is a good idea. Oh my God, they want to do, they want to increase abortion rights. And, and folks buy into that notion. Gee, we should make some changes to healthcare, and some health reform, oh my God, it's socialized medicine, uh, or national health insurance. Should we and change and it's going to bring death squads? Absolutely. Should we change the? Yeah, I'm not saying the I didn't say well, Obamacare leads to because it's got its own problems. The the change CPI, modifying the CPI that we use for Social Security and others. Oh my gosh, we're trying to kill Social Security. Or maybe we're also trying to to back when when George Bush was president and he wanted to create a private savings add on to Social Security. Suddenly he wanted to privatize and kill Social Security. The, when 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 Paul Ryan talked about premium support for Medicare insurance, suddenly he wanted to kill Medicare as we know it. But well, you know There's that no brings up case no, case but that brings up a good point. Yeah. yeah. And expanding it and playing on people's fears, especially that of the low information voter, um, it's a it's a proven successful way to frighten people. And cause them to turn again. But it, you know, it, it's funny too because the Democrats have done it for years on social.
0: Yeah, but, but it, it, you know, but it's, I, I want to bring this up though. It, it, but that's that's that brings up a bigger point. In 2013, it seems to me that demagoguery just went rampant. Unlike many years that we've seen in the past, it just seems that the demagoguery went to a whole new level of expectation this year, particularly hitting those who are not 100% informed about the way that they're governed.
5: No, but that's my, the reason I mentioned those yeah. other things is we forget, time passes, we forget the demonization of President Bush for talking about adding a private component to Social Security. And they went crazy, not just for 10 minutes, but for the rest of his presidency. This was the guy who wanted to privatize Social Security. It was a lie. But if, it, if, a lie, if a lie works, it continues to get used. Just the same point Al's making on, on, on some
1: modest gun
5: control laws. It's not confiscation. Good point.
0: But, again, I'm going to ask the question, those issues being under themselves, the general, the general venomness that happens in Washington seem to come to an uncontrollable high this year particularly when we talk about gun control after Newtown, particularly when we talk about the government shutdown, the budget crisis. Congressman Al. Now
2: we're getting back to the fact that, that the news media have a role in this, and it's, with the First Amendment it's almost impossible to control it. But the, the, the Rush Limbaugh is not a journalist. I don't think he even claims to be one. There are others who claim to be one who are not
5: journalists. They are
2: commentators, and they're not journalists.
5: And so
2: you have people. I mean, Fox created the war on Christmas. I mean, Fox. One one major thing created a whole panic of the war on Christmas. A panic about what? Because Megan?
0: Because Megan
5: Kelly said that. Because Megan Kelly said. Fox doesn't
0: no, no, but because Megan Kelly said that Jesus, and oh, by the way, Santa is white. First of all, yeah, if, if you've been to that part of the world, it's sort of the reverse. Yeah. yeah. Of
5: course Santa's white. Oh, by the way, so it's Jesus. It's like, oh, no, wait, 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 wait,
1: wait a minute. Santa's not real.
5: That's the point. Are you
4: really shows yes.
5: Oh,
0: oh, all right, yeah, all right, that's, that's I mean, true. I very bright, and,
4: yes. and he
5: has multiple colors.
4: Yes, he has multiple colors, and he will be arriving on December the 25th. Okay,
1: you know what?
5: Some places he comes
1: tonight. It's true, that's true. Certain parts, certain parts of Guam.
5: I want to come back to your original question, the big stories of this year, because there's a major, major story we haven't touched on. Which one's that? That 10 years from now may be the story, if it's not Obamacare, the story that we think back on, and it has to do with Syria. Ah. Well, you know what? With
1: millions
5: of people who are displaced, the hundreds, the more than 100,000 who have been killed and the tens of thousands who will almost certainly die this winter for a lack of shelter, warmth, and food. And this it, it, some of this falls on the shoulders of our president, who has admittedly been very busy, but he, when, he did, when he went, when he backed off threats to, to attack Syria, held off supporting rebel forces that were more moderate a year and a half ago, and, and allowed himself to be all in on getting rid of chemical weapons, which increasing evidence shows Assad may not even have ordered this could be the legacy that is most embarrassing to our president and to our country from this year. Well, you know, on
0: the phone with us right now is our international expert, Dr. Ralph Winnie. Ralph, how you doing?
5: Doing great. Happy. Hey, uh, Ralph, Merry
0: you Christmas, know, Merry Christmas. to you too, Ralph. You you heard uh, uh, you heard Alan talking about Syria uh, from an international front. Is Syria truly the big story? that we're not only talking about this year, but it's going to go forward in your opinion?
3: Uh, certainly Syria is a major story, but we also have to look at what's going to happen in North Korea in the next year. Um, Kim Jong-un certainly has consolidated his power. His um, uncle was recently
2: executed. We'll see if there's going to be some more saber rattling. Uh, uh,
1: yeah. Ralph?
2: Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: Do you hear me?
0: I think we lost Ralph. Oh, sorry about that. Ralph, if you, Ralph, if you can hear us, I apologize. We've got a lot of background noise, and, and people are starting to become festive here at Shelley here in the last 15 minutes of backroom politics. Um, Ralph, I, I apologize. Ralph, we'll, we'll have you on on the, on the first of the year uh, talking about some of the stuff that's happening in North Korea and China. But let's get back to Syria for a second. Uh, Bob Hines, you had a comment on Syria.
3: I think... Uh, I think the 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 lackadaisical, uh, poorly managed operation of uh, doing nothing in Syria that was fundamentally
1: strong. I think the president of the United States, long term, is
3: going to be probably criticized for that almost more than almost anything else. It's interesting to note that. Uh, Saudi Arabia, who is probably our closest ally in the Middle East, is so upset with the President of the United States and his policies in Syria that he is actually saying that the President of the United States is almost a criminal in the way he's acting. But, but he said it publicly, and it's, it's it's probably, from his standpoint, it's probably
2: true. Congressman Al. Is this the equivalent of uh, George Bush uh, going into... Uh, I mean, Saddam Hussein he had all of those weapons of mass destruction and went in there and left Afghanistan alone and comparable to that. No. No. I think so Republicans and Democrats have both screwed up royally. Totally. Denise crap. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think we have. I mean, what, what Alan is saying is that people are going to die. Of they're going to die. They're going to, be, they're going to die of hunger. They're going to die of
4: disease.
1: And they're going to die
4: because we are not helping them. You know, I I, I wasn't here last week because I was in um I was in talks. And this time uh, last week I, I was at a museum, um, in the Jewish ghetto in Prague. And, talk. and um, you know what? We screwed up, folks. Well, Eighty thousand people died in uh, Prague they were Jewish because we decided that we weren't gonna pay attention. And I, I'm not saying that this is at the same level of what happened, but it's the same type of. We're not going to pay attention. We cannot afford to have deaths of children. Friends. We cannot afford to have deaths of others on our hands because we are not focused. We need to be focused. Well,
0: that that's a huge, huge uh, brush there, Denise. I mean. But there are similarities with what's I mean, let's call it what it is. Bob Hines, Syria is a humanitarian crisis beyond all recognition.
3: It is today, and and we're not doing a damn thing about it.
0: And Alan Moore, is the responsibility on us, or do we look to the UN going forward into 2014? This is a shared
5: responsibility of the free world. The United Nations uh, this week asked for $4 billion for Syria, it will, it will probably get less than half of that. The U.S. is the biggest player, we're trying to do what we can
1: around the edges, we're
5: the biggest supporter of assistance to refugees who have crossed the borders into Turkey, into Jordan, into the surrounding countries, um, but, but because it's such a big country, we made some tactical decisions early on, and I'm sympathetic, man. I, uh, these are hard decisions. What do you decide? It, like, do I take this lousy option, or do I take that lousy option? Yeah, the fact of the matter is, though, that we, we made decisions early on to be super cautious in who we were going to help, super cautious in how assertive we could be, Uh, We talked about how a saw needed to go, and then we didn't do much about it. We put a red line in the sand, and it then turned pink, and now it's just white. and we went all in on the chemical weapons piece. Those were those were conscious decisions. So we we have quite a bit of this on us, but so does the rest of the world. Uh, and and uh, this is what's driven the Saudis so crazy and some of the other Middle Eastern countries who are normally some of our most reliable allies. Well, this, this is a big big story. We won't know how big until okay, possibly decades through, down the road. After we get through the winter, we'll have some sense of the human tragedy and loss, and then over time, we'll, we'll, we'll wonder if we look back and say, gee, I wonder if those red lines that we, uh, we chose to then ignore also contributed... So this problem and this problem and this problem in that region of the world. Well, we've
0: got 10 minutes and we got to break away a little bit earlier because I have other obligations tonight. But in the, pa- in the next couple of minutes, I want to go around. Don't even give me that look, Congressman Now, because I'm not looking at you. Uh, around the horn, real quick. If you could pick one political topic that's going to be the big one in 2014, Congressman Now, what's your what's your number one story politically for 2014?
2: Well, that. It takes a little thought, yeah. I and I don't have time for a
1: little thought. It's oh,
0: okay. Just <laughs> throw it at me, but, but <laughs> I'll come back to you. I'll come back to you, Bob Hines. You're talking about political thought. Political, political story of 2014. What are we going to be talking about this time next year?
3: I think we're going to be talking about what
0: Alan was just
3: talking about. Syria. The disaster in Syria. Now that's on the international scene. Yeah. I think. I think in 2014, as we approach the election, the biggest story is going to be, can the Republican Party deal strongly and get under, get some kind of a handle on the Heritage Foundation's funding raising, the Cub for Growth, putting all the, they're attacking about half a dozen different Republican senators good enough for the Tea Party. And they're putting up primary opponents against them. And that's going to be a big story as, the, as as these organizations outside the party raising money
0: are attacking the Republican Party because it isn't conservative enough for them. Denise Krap, what's the one big story we're going to be talking about in 2014? I'm on January the 8th. There's an uh,
1: incredible number of folks that has been... Uh,